Welcome to the Grizzly Times podcast with Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientists, managers, Native Americans, and others who share their experience and perspectives about grizzly bears and their ecosystems. This comes at a critical time in a complex debate about grizzlies as the government has stripped endangered species protections for Yellowstone grizzlies, allowing trophy hunting, and now moves to do the same for Glacier's grizzlies. We hope that you find the information and views offered here helpful as you shape your own conclusions. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm here today with Tim Presso, an attorney with Earth Justice, which is a legal organization aimed at saving the Earth and the wildlife that depends on it. Wildlife that now more than ever needs a good lawyer. Tim has enjoyed a long and successful career that's far from over. And on August 30th, he argues a critical case involving Yellowstone's grizzly bears and whether or not they should be hunted for trophies beginning on September 1st. So, Tim, you've worked as an environmental attorney for decades now. Uh, And maybe you could share just a story or two about what sparked your interest in the environment and, and, moreover, what influenced you to become an environmental attorney? Yeah, I like a lot of people trace that back to outdoors experiences as a young person i find that over and over that's a formative moment and people who get out into the woods as a kid tend to value those things as they become an adult my own situation was i grew up in northeastern oregon and i was on the boundary of the eagle cap wilderness which is the largest designated wilderness area in oregon and i grew up in a kind of a rural community that was pretty much all about kind of ranching and logging and those kinds of things and those things didn't really resonate with me a lot but getting out into those trails that headed up into the high country of the Wallow Mountains did and so that was a really important experience for me as a young person getting out into that pristine wilderness land and that really stuck with me and then later in life when I became a newspaper reporter really through no intention I ended up covering environmental issues and it was in the midst of the spotted owl logging controversy. I was in Oregon then as well, in the Pacific Northwest. And what became pretty clear to me quickly was that the lawyers were the ones making a big difference on that issue. And particularly, there were lawyers at the scrappy office of a group called the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund in <laughs> Seattle, Washington, that were making huge changes in the way the Pacific Northwest forests were managed and saving some of those old-growth forests. And that also made a big impact on me, and so I decided I wanted to go to law school because I wanted to do that. And then subsequently, Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund became Earth Justice, and here I am. (laughs) Wonderful. So maybe this goes back to your days in uh, Northeast Oregon, but you have become quite, are quite the accomplished naturalist and have a particular passion for birds. Uh, Maybe you can share a story or two about one of your favorite birds or maybe favorite birding places. Sure. Interestingly, I was my interest in birds really grew out of my time moving back east to go to law school because I'd grown up in the west and in wild places where there was a lot of wildlife around. It was just kind of part of my baseline expectation of existence. But when I moved back to the east, that didn't exist except in the form of birds. Now I say I'm interested in everything, including birds. But <laughs> birds do have a special place in my heart. And I would say one bird that stands out for me is... Um, When I first moved to Montana in 2000 in March, uh, at the end of a long winter, that first spring was heralded by the cries of sandhill cranes over the valley here. And that was my first time really experiencing that. It's such an evocative sound, and it speaks to so much Mm -hmm. about wildness and 
uh, species like the crane that makes these immense seasonal movements mm -hmm. and kind of goes from one really wild place to the next. And mm -hmm. and ever since then, the Sandhill Crane call in the spring has always been a really meaningful thing for me. So I look mm -hmm. forward to that every year. And he was a very special bird to uh, author, naturalist, and conservationist Alder Leopold. Right. That that uh, there's a great chapter in Sound County Almanac that talks about uh, the music of the cranes, and that's also something that's really meaningful to me. So maybe you can share a bit, having gone to law school um, and having thought about the law a lot, what you think of as. Uh, what your view of the role of law in society is, especially a democratic one like ours, and how and why lawyers serve critical purpose. I think law is the great equalizer in a way in our country. I mean, there's obviously such huge disparities in wealth and power, but our aspiration is that the law applies equally to everyone. And that's an, kind of a uniquely American innovation. I mean, we're very fortunate in this country that the, every person has the right to bring the mightiest government that has ever existed on the face of the earth into a courtroom and make it answerable to the rule of law and kind of reasoned decision making. Mm -hmm. And in most other parts of the world, you simp that's simply unheard of, but we have that right. And it's a core part of our, 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 the functioning of our democracy. And I think in particular in the world that I operate in, environmental law, it's extremely meaningful because when the government takes actions affecting the environment, they have the entirety of the United States Department of Justice to stand up and represent them. And of course, the corporate interests that want to develop forests or waters or whatever it may be, they have the biggest, most powerful private law firms in the world to represent them. Mm -hmm. But the environment, the wildlife and the clean water and the clean air, there's nobody to stand up for them in the in, in the legal world unless somebody takes on that responsibility and that's the mission of Earth Justice. Well, it's a huge weight on all of your shoulders who work there and a, a laudable mission, but a huge, a huge load to carry. I mean, it is, it is, it's a weight, but it's also a privilege. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who have law degrees who are miserable mm -hmm. and don't find much satisfaction in their work. And I can honestly say that I'm, you know, as I'm approaching 30 years into a legal career, that I feel very privileged to have a purposeful career and to be able to say that I can see where we've made a difference in things that I care deeply about. So mm -hmm. that's, that's about as much as you can ask for. Absolutely. So I was with you in the celebration of some of your victories, uh, and they were big. Uh, maybe you can uh, share a story mm -hmm. or two of uh, you know, some of your most satisfying or maybe surprise uh, victories and, uh, and what the ingredients were that kind of brought that about. Yeah. Well, I think at the apex, for me, is the roadless rule. Mm -hmm. This was a U.S. Forest Service initiative at the, in the Clinton administration to protect the last 58.5 million acres of undeveloped and unprotected national forest lands from road construction and logging. And it was a landmark protection because the conservation movement had been fighting to protect these areas for decades. And suddenly here was this new layer of protection that was going to put them permanently off limits from road construction and logging. Unfortunately, that rule was finalized when the Clinton administration was on its way out the door and the George W. Bush administration was coming in. And, of course, the opponents of the rule rushed into court to overturn it, and the George W. Bush administration refused to defend it. Mm -hmm. 
And so in that moment, it fell to Earth Justice representing basically public, the public's interest in the forest in the, in the form of a number of conservation groups, mm-hmm. stepped into the breach and did the job of the United States Justice Department to defend the roadless rule from this host of, of court attacks that were filed all around the country and went on over a period of more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And remarkably, I'm able to say that we ran the table in those cases and successfully defended the roadless rule every time it was challenged. And I remember uh, when the Obama administration came into office, one of their officials was somewhat dubious about the roadless rule because they said, well, you're going to have to win every case. And how realistic is that? Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, it was very realistic because we did. (laughs) And today the roadless rule remains the law of the land. Mm -hmm. Always it's up for grabs. I mean, always we have to defend it. Always we, it's never cemented in place without a threat, but Today, those roadless areas are protected, and that, that for me is kind of the apex of, of what I've been able to participate in at Earth Justice. And that involved not just this office in Bozeman, Montana. It involved Earth Justice offices in uh, the Pacific Northwest and in Alaska and in California. And we scrambled all of our resources to defend that rule in every form where it was challenged. So it was both a great, a fine hour for me in my legal career, but also one of the finest hours for Earth Justice. So it's extremely rewarding from that perspective. Yes. One of the biggest uh, days um, when that was finally won at last. Yes. Um, but yep, yes, you're right. Sure. It never rests. So you've litigated, Tim, over a long part of your career, a number of endangered species cases, um, including on wolves and grizzlies. Uh, and what what in your view makes these kinds of cases different from others you may have worked on and why do they matter to you? Yeah. Well, there's so much of a planet that is controlled by humans and we spend so much of our lives in environments that are totally controlled by humans. We live inside this human construct most of our lives now and there's still a part of the planet that is not controlled by humans. And in the, in, in, in the lower 48, in the, in the west, in the northern Rockies in particular, the grizzly bear and the wolf are, they embody so much of that remainder of the self-willed landscape, the, the, the part of the world that humans cannot control. And that elicits strong emotional responses in my experience. It elicits great love and devotion from people who love wildness and wild places and everything that embodies about a world where everything is not under the thumb of some economic imperative or political demand. Um, But it also inspires great hatred. Mm -hmm. There are people who have immense hatred for wolves and bears because they embody that. And Mm -hmm. they either they resent or they don't feel comfortable with that whole concept, that idea that there's something that we shouldn't control or can't control. And so those cases bring out the strongest passions of anything that we work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people have so much of their self-identity tied up in these issues, including myself. I mean, for me, those are powerful. They, the, the grizzly and the wolf are both really important, meaningful members of the ecological community. But I mean, to be candid, they're also really powerful symbols mm-hmm. of something that matters still in the world, which is preserving a vestige of a wild landscape where life can kind of take its own course and everything doesn't have to be under the yoke of, 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 of our economy and our politics. Mm-hmm. And um, those, the, that resonates through everything about those 
those particular species from politics to media to social uh, response to the law, to the legal response. Mm -hmm. And those cases are always fraught with more kind of baggage than any others. And so I think you'll see when this Yellowstone grizzly bear case is argued in Missoula on August 30th, there will be an extraordinary turnout of members of the public who care a lot about it. There will be a really unusual level of attention, and it's because of all the strong emotions that these cases inspire. So in a few days, you're going to bring one of these very cases, uh, arguing a major case on the Yellowstone grizzly bear in federal court in Missoula, uh, the topic being whether endangered species protections should have been stripped from this bear population in, in 2017. And in effect, the court will decide, either that day or shortly after, whether or not Wyoming is going to be allowed to begin trophy hunting of grizzly bears on September 1st. So this is the second grizzly bear delisting case you've worked on, and you've worked on others. Uh, the last delisting case was a decade ago, and you and others at Earth Justice successfully restored protections for Yellowstone's grizzlies. How is this case different from what has happened in the past? I mean, in my mind, this case is represents the the rubber hitting the road on the threats that we saw developing at the time of the first delisting de case. The the government moved to delist the Yellowstone grizzly population in 2007 in the face of a massive ecological shift in the Yellowstone region that was wiping out one of the bear's key food sources, which was the seeds of the whitebark pine tree. And everybody who lived here knew that was happening because you all, all you had to do was look up on the ridge lines and you could see the red needles of all the dying trees. And the bears depended on those trees in the fall for, for a key part of their nutrition that would bulk them up enough to then go into their winter dens. And the Fish and Wildlife Service, the government agency that's responsible for protecting this species, was so committed to its delisting policy that notwithstanding there was this huge shift that suddenly occurred at the 11th hour, they just bowled forward and finalized it. And we were able to bring that issue to the court, and we were successful in overturning their decision because they did blow past that critical issue about mm -hmm. the future of grizzly bears in the region. Now, flash forward, and we're seeing the, the, the consequences of that massive die-off of a key food source because bears had to find something else to eat. And what they found to eat increasingly was meat. But that meat was in the form of remains left by hunters, or livestock in many cases. And in both of those circumstances, that brought bears into conflict with people. It brought bears into conflict with hunters, where bears would maybe get in mixed up with a hunter and be shot, or a hunter would perceive a threat and shoot in self-defense, or whatever it may be. But a lot of dead bears ended up uh, uh, showing up during the hunting seasons. And then there were a lot more bears being killed because of livestock conflicts. And so what we've seen is 2015, 2016, 2017, and now, even more in 2018, unprecedented levels of grizzly bear mortalities in the Yellowstone ecosystem because the bears are getting killed as they get into this much less secure landscape, finding, trying to find meat as a food source to substitute for the loss of so many of their other key foods, including the whitebark pine. Now, the government, unfortunately, satisfied itself with saying, well, they found something else to eat, so they're fine. See, we knew there were more food out there. They're, they're fine. What they didn't do was grapple with what are the consequences of that alternative food. What does it mean for bear survivor, survivorship and bear um, reproduction and loss of cubs when bears have to scrap it out over a, a, a bison carcass or maybe a livestock carcass? Mm -hmm. And so this time around, we're coming back to the court saying, here we go again, Judge. They, 
they blew off a key impact in their haste to get this rule across the finish line. And this time, it was the mortality consequences of the major food shift that we saw underway in 2007. In the current case, um, you're representing Center for Biological Diversity and Sierra Club and National Parks and Conservation Association, but your lead client is the Northern Cheyenne Tribe. So what here is the role of the tribe and why is it important? Yeah, it's a great honor to represent the Northern Cheyenne Tribe in this case. Um, the Unlike all the other people who are interested in the grizzly bear, including myself, the tribe's interest in the grizzly bear literally goes back millennia. Um, the grizzly bear has been a key aspect of their cultural and spiritual world for longer than, you know, m my ancestors have been on this continent. Um, I'm not really in a position to speak to that. Really, the Cheyenne people should speak to that themselves, but I understand that it's really important and meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And the idea for them that the grizzly bear is nothing more than another trophy animal that somebody will be able to hunt and you know, put in their den is, I know from my discussions with folks, they're very disturbing. Uh, apart from that cultural and spiritual interest, the Northern Cheyenne would love to see a future in which grizzly bears are once again a part of their natural world on the reservation, as they were historically. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to happen if all the bears on the periphery of the ecosystem uh, are subject to hunting, as they will be under this post-delisting regime unless we're able to overturn it. So that's another key piece um, mm -hmm. in the equation for the Northern Cheyenne, and, and it'll be a privilege to be able to stand up in court on their behalf. So almost a decade ago, or actually two decades ago, I think maybe now, you became office manager of Earth Justice Expanding Presence here in the Northern Rockies. Maybe you can share a bit about how the work of the attorneys in this office and in Earth Justice more broadly has been changing over time. Well, when I came to this organization in 2000, the great bulk of our docket was devoted to land and wildlife issues. And a big chunk of our docket here in the Northern Rockies is still devoted to land and wildlife issues because we're in the midst of this place where we're fortunate to have some of the premier wildlands uh, owned by the public that remain in the world. Um, but the other thing that's happened during the course of my time here is that climate change has become a huge issue that affects land and wildlife and all kinds of other things, including human communities and agriculture and water availability. And, and it's, it's an existential threat to the society we've constructed, and it's also a big warning signal that that society is not sustainable. And so in the Northern Rockies, we've tried to address that at, on every front, and that means both... Um, attacking the sources of greenhouse gases and so we've worked to try to phase out coal combustion as a as an energy source and at the same time trying to promote renewables which there are great opportunities mm -hmm. in the region for wind and solar that unfortunately are not being seized upon by the utilities and the and the regulators and so our, we've established a big new part of our program that's focused on trying to make that transition we're not just simply saying don't burn coal we're saying don't burn coal. Instead, mm -hmm. use the wind, use the sun, uh, use other opportunities to generate electricity that don't cook the planet. Mm -hmm. And that's something that has to happen here and it has to happen around the globe for us to succeed with that issue. Mm -hmm. So your discussion about climate change gets us to this current administration, which is um, more than any other administration in the history of this country has been beavering away at unraveling environmental protections at virtually all levels. 
uh, even though the public has been shown time and time again that it overwhelmingly supports protection of the earth and species and clean air and water. So what are your thoughts on what is motivating um, President Trump and Republicans' current assault on the environment, especially given uh, what Republicans did for the environment and environmental protections in the 1960s and 70s? That's a really good question. I think I've really struggled with that. It's hard for me to understand what is motivating that. It's almost like a, a tribalism type response that environmental protection is part of the other side's agenda, so we're against it, period, regardless of any discussion on the merits. Um, I, I hope that's not the case, but, but I, I will confess I don't understand a lot of what's motivating it. I will say that it's a key moment for the rule of law because the presidency is a lost cause for environmental protection. The Congress at this moment of time is unwilling to stand up for even basic kinds of environmental initiatives like dealing with this overarching threat of climate change. And it's really fallen to the courts to be the last backstop for enforcing environmental law and imposing reasoned decision-making requirements instead of just allowing arbitrary whims to control. And we've seen the courts are stepping up to that challenge in mm -hmm. many circumstances. And for our country, it's a key moment for the judiciary to stand as a safeguard of, of reason and democracy. So, Tim, you have a daughter, Alex, who's back at college now. What kind of natural world do you think her, she and her kids and grandkids will inherit? Well, it's something I worry a lot about. I, I think that it really depends on us. Um, what we inherited in the Northern Rockies, for instance, never, none of it was by accident. We have Yellowstone National Park. We have the greater Yellowstone ecosystem with all the public lands surrounding the park and the big wilderness areas and the grizzly bears and the bison and the wolves. We've got Glacier National Park and the Northern Continental Divide, the Bob Marshall Wilderness with similar wildlife, really, uh, treasures. And we've got this big wilderness complex in central Idaho that is millions of acres of undeveloped land. But that all exists here in 2018 only because past generations you know, spent their blood, sweat, and tears to establish and protect it over decades. And going back to the earliest history of Yellowstone, there was always somebody who wanted to diminish it or develop it or in some way compromise it. They wanted to carve off the northern range and build a railroad to Cook City. They wanted to build a dam in the, uh, the southwest corner to provide irrigation water to Idaho potato farmers. There's, there's always been something. And we have it today only because past generations stand up and said no. They stood up and said no, I should say. And every generation has to carry on that, that, that trust. And today, that trust is on our shoulders to provide a future in which, you know, my daughter or anybody else's children and grandchildren will be able to enjoy the same things we've been able to enjoy. And that is now compounded by the threat of climate change, which seems, in, you know, so out of control and involves global factors that we can't influence in the same way maybe we can influence some of these uh, local issues. But it requires us to step up our 
our dedication in a new way and have even more resolve and and that's 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 the responsibility of this generation and I don't know how it will come out what I what I can say is that in the northern rockies I think that it's fair to say that due to the work of basically the conservation movement since um well since the beginning but but really zeroing in on the last uh 30 years or so 20 30 maybe 30 to 40 years this is actually in many ways a wilder place than it was um going back at that time and i'm really proud of that and you had a lot to do with that um i i think that you know we can look around now and say that places that were suffering from loss of species Yellowstone didn't have wolves. Mm-hmm. Um now we have wolves in Yellowstone. The wolverines were wiped out by trapping and poisoning in the mid 20th century and now we have wolverines in in Yellowstone and and the Northern Continental Divide and yes they're imperiled by all kinds of things and they're maybe hanging on by a thread but we have them. Um and we have built back up bison populations, wild bison. You know, the last 25 bison after the 60 million were killed, the last 25 were in Yellowstone National Park. And now today we have 4,000 or 5,000 and and yeah, that's nothing compared to 60 million, but it's it's it could have been zero. And so I and and we've got now roadless areas that have protection and we're not fighting every timber sale by timber sale. You know, it's not trench warfare on every logging project. we were able to hold the line on protecting these undeveloped areas and even more than that we have a uh, communities that value those undeveloped areas is there's no clamor in in the northern rockies to we need to get the logging projects going in the in the roadless areas bordering yellowstone national park instead as we value those things we don't want them developed we in the local community oppose that when somebody came forward with a gold mining proposal near immigrant peak in the paradise valley outside the northern gateway of yellowstone You know, 30 years ago, and I would suspect that a lot of the local community would have stood up and said, "We want those mining jobs." Mm-hmm. Now, the local community stood up and said, "We want that place undeveloped. We love that wild gateway of Yellowstone and we want the water quality. We value it for the the rivers and the fishing and the wild places and those local communities leading the charge against it." Mm-hmm. So in many places, in many ways, I feel like this is a wilder place with more um investment by the local communities and keeping it that way mm-hmm. uh then it has been you know in a very long time unfortunately the 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 un, the the factors that are cutting the other direction are extremely powerful and they are human population growth mm-hmm. and climate change mm-hmm. and although all these things have been all this progress has been made the other thing that's happening is all the human communities surrounding the Yellowstone are growing mm-hmm. and that puts more pressure all the time on the public lands on the wildlife mm-hmm. chewing up winter range for for elk and deer and moose and um uh more recreation pressure and you know I'm not criticizing that I recreate on those lands I'm not trying to say somebody shouldn't I'm just saying the reality of all that the cumulative impact of that is there's just a lot more human presence and that puts pressure on everything more and more and then you have climate change which is we've seen like the white bark pine loss in Yellowstone which fundamentally changed the whole ecology is driven by climate change we're seeing earlier spring runoff we're seeing lower lower rivers we're seeing warmer waters for native fish um we're seeing less snowpack for wolverines and you know canada lynx and on and on there's those are huge forces that are cutting back the other direction and what the future holds 
in, in, in for all of that is, you know, I, I don't know. What I can say is that I feel like we have done our best at Earth Justice to try to pass this on to the next generation better than we found it. And I hope that the next generation will do that as well. Well, thank you, Tim. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. This is uh, Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times talking to Tim Presso at a critical juncture for the Grizzly Bear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.